Hello and welcome to Interpreting India. I'm Srinath Raghavan and this is a podcast presented by Carnegie India. Every two weeks, we bring to you voices from India and around the world as we unpack the role of technology, the economy and foreign policy in shaping India's relationship with the world. It's been 74 years since the atomic bombs were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. This year, 2019, also marks the 30th anniversary of the collapse of the Berlin Wall and the end of the Cold War in Europe. Back then, it seemed that the shadow of nuclear weapons that had hung over international politics for almost half a century had begun to recede. Yet, today, issues of nuclear strategy, proliferation, and nuclear security have returned to the center stage of global politics. From North Korea through Iran to Russia, the United States is embroiled in negotiation and confrontation over nuclear issues. Closer home, in India, a long-running debate about India's no-first-use policy has been rekindled by Defence Minister Rajnath Singh's recent statement, and I quote, Till today, our nuclear policy is no-first-use. What happens in the future depends on the circumstances, end quote. Coming against the backdrop of India's evolving punitive strategy towards terrorism emanating from Pakistan, this raises many important questions. To talk about these issues today, I'm joined by Professor Vipin Narang, who's one of the foremost experts on nuclear proliferation and strategy, South Asian security, and security studies more broadly. Vipin is an associate professor of political science at MIT and is a member of MIT's security studies program. He's also a non-resident scholar in the nuclear policy program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, Washington, D.C. Vipin is the author of a book, Nuclear Strategy in the Modern Era, which won the 2015 ISA International Security Studies Section Best Book Award. His forthcoming book, Strategies of Nuclear Proliferation, analyzes how states pursue nuclear weapons. Vipin, welcome to Interpreting India. Thanks for having me, Srinath. It's a real pleasure to be here. Let's start by taking stock of the bigger picture. Uh, I want you to sort of reflect a little bit on what is so distinctive about the current wave of nuclear security issues, uh, which have cropped up literally in the last 24 months and have come to the center stage of global politics, when you look back at the kinds of challenges that we faced during the Cold War and in the post-Cold War period? Yeah, so uh, I've recently started arguing and uh, characterizing and thinking about what we what I call a third nuclear age. And I think we're on the cusp um, of entering that era. And in a lot of ways, it's the most severe and significant challenges of the first two nuclear ages. So the first two, the first nuclear age was essentially the Cold War superpower competition. Uh, and that was marked by arms races, uh, destabilizing strategies like U.S. counterforce strategies and damage limitation. The second nuclear age was really about, in the post-Cold War era, about stopping new states from acquiring nuclear weapons. U.S. policy was keyed. If you look at the 25-year arc after the Cold War, really it's stopping you know, so-called rogue states from acquiring nuclear weapons, Iraq, Libya, Syria, North Korea. Um, these were the challenges of the, the second nuclear age. But in the last 24 months, as we've seen, we've seen uh, a renewed great power nuclear arms competition uh, and the emergence of new uh, nuclear powers, particularly North Korea and the challenges with Iran. Uh, there's a third feature of this third nuclear age, which I think is also important, that mirrors some of the maybe the worst practices of the Cold War. And that's the diffusion of technologies to regional powers like in South Asia um, or Israel, where uh, some of the more destabilizing nuclear strategies might 
be finding temptation, um, particularly uh, with the diffusion and the the falling costs of surveillance and reconnaissance technologies, accuracy, delivery systems. And so strategies that were heretofore probably uh, very uh, expensive uh, for regional powers to think about or pursue uh, are becoming more attractive. And, you know, damage limitation strategies that include missile defenses and counterforce strategies uh, are becoming more plausible potentially for regional powers. And so the last 24 months we've seen uh, you know, the, the INF treaty has dissipated. There's a question about whether the new START treaty will be extended. And if it's not, uh, the U.S.-Russia arms competition may, for the first time in decades, not have a cap on strategic deployed systems. Uh, all the while, while China, uh, while not necessarily a nuclear peer competitor of U.S. and Russia, is rapidly modernizing and expanding uh, its nuclear delivery, delivery systems. Uh, if not its nuclear warhead uh, stockpile. And North Korea in the last 24 months has announced itself as uh, a de facto nuclear weapons power uh, with an ICBM capability, a thermonuclear weapons capability. Uh, And it is the first, at least for the United States, the first adversarial state since China in 1964 to acquire nuclear weapons. Uh, And so for 25 years, the United States have tried to stop a state from getting out of the barn. And we have one now that's out of the barn. And if you're Iran and see the red carpet laid out for Kim Jong-un while you're getting tweet threats from President Trump, you're thinking it's good to be a nuclear weapons power. And so for you know at least a quarter century, there had been an effort to reduce the salience of nuclear weapons in international politics. But I think there's a renewed interest at the great power level, at the regional level, uh, and the new technologies that are now available to all states in the system. Uh, make certain strategies that were destabilizing but may have strategic logic to them uh, more attractive. So those three features, I think, really put us on the cusp of a new nuclear era right now, which is uh, essentially a combination of the worst features of the first and the second nuclear age. That's great. And uh, we'll come to many of these specific issues in in just a moment. But I want to stay with this point about the sort of technological character of what you call the third nuclear age, because nuclear technology per se is pretty old now. Right. So, Nuclear weapons are 1950s technology, 1940s technology, right? It's the it's the bells and whistles that are becoming, and the associated architectures that are becoming more sophisticated, becoming um, more you know, the accuracy. Uh, the accuracy revolution in the U.S. nuclear force posture was really in the late 70s, early 80s, uh, with the Pershing missiles, and then missile defenses. Missile defenses are often not characterized or thought of as, you know, related to nuclear weapons strategy and systems, but they're critical to this concept of, you know, a splendid first strike because, you know, without missile defenses, missile defenses are very sophisticated technology and, you know, the advances in AI are going to help uh, with tracking, discrimination, interception. Uh, but without missile defenses, if you're really interested in, you know, so-called counterforce strategies, you have to go and get everything. But missile defenses allow you to keep, you know, uh, or miss a residual force. And, you know, maybe missile defenses aren't perfect, but you may tell yourself in an extreme situation, I might have a sporting chance of intercepting two or three adversarial nuclear systems headed my way. If I can't get them all, at least I can limit the damage significantly. And missile defenses kind of complement the symphony of counterforce strategies. Uh, and we're seeing advances in all of these in, in all of these systems associated with uh, the targeting piece were nuclear weapons, but also the the interception piece with missile defenses. In the 1950s and 60s, the United States played around with the idea of 
developing a cruise missile with unlimited range. So the Russians got this idea um, based on what the U.S. did in the 1960s of putting a nuclear, a mini nuclear reactor, essentially, on a cruise missile to give it unlimited range so that it could penetrate American national missile defenses. The idea of putting an unshielded nuclear reactor on uh, a mini reactor on a cruise missile uh, with all of that hot air flying through, spewing out radiation, uh, leads to the kinds of tragedies and accidents uh, that we saw uh, last week in, in in Russia, where five scientists were killed. We may never really know the precise design that the Russians were working on, uh, but it shows two things. One, that the Russians are very scared, and I think the Chinese as well, of future U.S. missile defenses. Uh, and two, that they're willing to go to great lengths and costly lengths to try to defeat uh, those systems. Uh, but, you know, the U.S. experimented with this as Project Pluto in the 50s and 60s and gave up very quickly because when you do when you, you have this kind of design, you're spewing radiation underneath everything the missile flies over. Uh, and to date, the Russians haven't had great success with this uh, missile. I think the longest test flight was about two minutes uh, and the missile flew about 22 miles. Uh, and in this latest test, uh, it had tragic consequences. And how much of this is also a reaction by Russia? to the American decision to pull out of the intermediate nuclear forces treaty. So, yeah, I think I think part of this is, you know, we should step back a second. I think the so the INF treaty was a 1987 um arms control treaty which is often characterized as a nuclear arms control treaty. It's really about missiles. Uh and the INF treaty treaty prohibited the US and Soviet Union at that time and then later Russia from deploying ground-launched missiles between 500 and 5500 miles. And it's kind of an artifact, an arbitrary uh, designation for um, uh, in the Cold War context about why that range was chosen. But it was really so that the United States would remove missiles from Europe that could threaten deep into the Russian uh, homeland and vice versa with the Russians and the European allies. So the, the footnote to all of this is every other country has a huge inventory of missiles in the intermediate range because their threat environment basically requires intermediate range missiles. Pakistan, India, China, uh, Israel, uh, France maybe did at one point. Um, but the 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 treaty was really about missiles and it didn't prohibit air launch or sea launch missiles in this range, just ground launch missiles. Some point in the post-Cold War era, Russia decided, you know, it might be useful to have conventional missiles in this range uh, to threaten NATO countries or the Baltics or NATO forces or the U.S. and Europe. And so in the early 2010s, a missile system called the 9M, designated the 9M729, uh, was developed, uh, tested, uh, and we believe deployed by Russia at some point, which violated the INF Treaty. But that's an American intelligence assessment. That's an American intelligence assessment. And, you know, Russia really has, an, has, the, has implausible denials about the 9M729. So if we stipulate that Russia developed this and was unilaterally violating the treaty, it put a lot of pressure on the Obama administration. On how do you deal with a, a violation in a bilateral treaty where one party is cheating but won't admit it? Um, and that kind of led, I think, to the Trump administration's decision to say, look, it's a bilateral treaty. Uh, that one party is violating, and we can either just ignore the violation and let it lapse and not full, formally withdraw from the treaty, or you know we can try to put pressure to put Russia to come back into compliance by threatening to withdraw and giving a window. Uh, it was kind of a ham-handed strategy at first. The Trump administration announced that it was going to withdraw, but they didn't announce the window. Then, with uh, under pressure from European allies, said, "Okay, we'll we'll do it six months from now to give the Russians time to come into compliance." The Russians decided. 
you know, to take the gift horse that it was and just say, no, we'll, if you're going to withdraw, go for it. We're not going to come back into compliance. Uh, and so as of last month, the, um, the INF treaty lapsed as U.S. withdrew. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, the way my characterization or reading of it is that I'm not going to die on a hill for the INF treaty. Um, it, it prohibited a very small and limited class of missiles that Russia decided it wanted to pursue and develop. And a bilateral treaty where one party is secretly or quietly cheating you know, may not be worth trying to preserve. And the bigger issue coming down the road, though, is New START. And that is a bilateral arms control treaty, nuclear arms control treaty between the U.S. and Russia that limits strategic nuclear deployments to 1,550. There's some weird accounting rules, but you know, that's probably the simplest way to, to say it. And I will die on a hill for New START because there's a broad bipartisan constituency which supported in the United States the extension of New START. If you're a counterforcer, you like New START because you know exactly how many Soviet or Russian systems there are, where they are, uh, and you know it's small and you can go get it. If you're an arms controller, you like New START because it keeps both sides at you know cap deployments. So the constituency that opposes New START uh, is the one that believes that the U.S. in the U.S. at least can win an unlimited arms race with Russia, and that the U.S. is competitively fitter to do that. But that's a scary prospect. That takes us back to an era where the U.S. and Russia may have it puts so much pressure on Russia. But, you know, they may not have a choice and you you find yourself in a pretty significant numerical and quantitative arms race in addition to this qualitative arms race that we're seeing with the INF Treaty. And do you think there are any sort of knock-on repercussions of the INF Treaty vis-a-vis China's nuclear policy? Yeah, I'd say 80% of the rationale for those who uh, in the U.S. who wanted to pull out of the INF Treaty, they used the Russian violations to, to basically uh, open up the possibility of ground-based deployments in East Asia. Although the U.S. has a significant air and sea launch capability in East Asia, uh, there are advantages to having ground-based systems. They're cheaper, they're easier to deploy, you can surge up. If you have places you can deploy them in hosts, which is a big problem for ground-based systems, who's going to host these systems, uh, you can put a knife to the Chinese throat in ways that China is doing to U.S. assets in the region. Uh, And that is probably going to be the biggest uh, consequence of of, uh, the, the INF Treaty lapsing. Uh, so I think East Asia is probably where the greatest action is going to be and, dynamis- and dynamism is going to be with the, the lapse of the INF Treaty. And, and let's just maybe stay with North Korea for a moment. You have been tracking uh, the negotiations between the United States and North Korea very closely. You've commented on it very regularly. I mean, so as of now, I mean, does that look like there is a method to what is happening or is it a series of sort of steps which are primarily aimed at assuaging various kinds of domestic constituencies that's being played out on both sides? And and what how exactly does Seoul look at all of this? South Korea, I mean, it's a- well, Kim Jong Un has a method, and his method is to build nuclear weapons and ballistic missiles uh, at all ranges while the process is ongoing because he never said he was going to stop. Uh, and I think the the easiest way I think to characterize where we are with North Korea today is that there was um, a real uh, possibility of a so called interim deal over key facilities in North Korea. Uh, particularly the Yongbyon facility. Which so opening up those facilities. Opening up and dismantling them. Dismantling. I think actually, and taking them away by force is too risky, which I think has meaningful objectives for global security. We don't want North Korea proliferating in other countries like Pakistan or Syria or Iran. Uh, and should, God forbid, North Korea ever implode, you don't want it to have a monster-sized force that you have to secure. So it, it, everything seemed like it was leading up to Hanoi where President Trump had basically indicated that he was willing to accept not maybe formally or you know openly, but live with or coexist with the nuclear North Korea, so long as it slowed its program down. 
But I hand away, President Trump decided uh, to swing for the fences and demanded that North Korea give up its entire program. But was that on the table from the very beginning? Because there have been voices in the administration which said that, you know, that's what we've asked of North Korea all along and that, you know, that's what they've signed up for and so on. Well, North Korea never signed up for that. So North Korea signed up to, you know, denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula, which is basically I call it the Baskin Robbins of of, of, of phrases because 31 flavors of denuclearization. Uh, that doesn't mean that North Korea is going to unilaterally disarm, despite what the United States and Secretary Pompeo may say. North Korea is only committed very vaguely to this concept. And to this date, we don't have a definition, a common definition, let alone a North Korean definition of what denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula means. We can infer what they mean from it, and it means basically arms control. It means as long as the U.S. doesn't deploy nuclear assets in the region and doesn't pursue a hostile policy, as North Koreans call it, towards North Korea, North Korea is willing to place limits on testing its weapons, uh, maybe on fissile material production, uh, but it has never said it's going to give up its nuclear weapons program. So, you know, Hanoi is probably the best deal we we're going to get. And we may look back at Hanoi with regret that we passed up on it because it's not clear whether that uh, deal will be back on the table. But since Hanoi fell apart, Kim Jong-un, you know, I think was at home, was humiliated. And the North Koreans kind of went into hibernation for a little while to figure out why they walked away from Hanoi empty handed. Uh, and a lot of people lost a lot of face in the North Korean system because everyone, I think, thought that President Trump was going to go there to ratify Kim Jong-un as a nuclear weapons power. And uh, when he walked away empty-handed, you know, we've seen the consequences. Uh, North Korea said that the U.S. has until the end of the year to so-called change its calculation towards North Korea on scoping and sequencing. But we've also seen a d- the th- these are short-range missiles and President Trump can put his head in this, you know, can deny that they're uh, and rightfully say, look, they're not ICBM. So that's, you know, Kim Jong-un never said he would stop testing these, but they're, they're new systems that Kim Jong-un has developed all through this, while this process has been on, ongoing. They're solid fuel. They can maneuver in flight. They're a nightmare for regional missile defenses. Uh, and they display this prototype of a, what they want us to think is an SSBN. And uh, all of those uh, are indicators that Kim Jong-un can put the pressure on the United States and South Korea also. Uh, and not only are those missiles, uh, you know, a nightmare for regional missile defenses, but if those missiles show up in other countries, there's a lot of demand for very sophisticated, maneuverable, short-range ballistic missiles out there. And Iran, Syria, Pakistan may all be interested in this kind of technology. So without a deal, there's a real concern that some of these missiles and this technology may show up somewhere else. And this puts, as we said, South Korea in a very difficult position. In fact, I was just in Seoul right before I came here, and uh, I mean, my sympathies go out to South Korea. They find themselves in a very difficult position. President Moon and the administration is fighting, has open fronts with Japan, the United States over cost sharing, North Korea over its nuclear weapons program and the peace process. Uh, and so if you're South Korea right now, you have a very bad hand to play. Uh, you're being shaken down by your formal ally. Uh, you're, it, the East Asia security architecture is crumbling because of the fight between Japan and South Korea. All the while, North Korea basically, you know, has 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 signaled to President Moon that he's unwilling to talk to President Moon anymore because why should he? He's gotten President Trump, and so President Moon gives this, uh, you know, speech on August fifteenth in 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 Seoul, uh, extending the olive branch to Kim Jong Un, and Kim Jong Un basically slapped him in the face with it. Yeah, and if you are Iran. How are you going to be looking at 
these negotiations between the United States and North Korea at a time when the United States has torn up uh, what seemed like a exactly. perfectly fine I mean, agreement. Squaring the circle on the strategies between North Korea and Iran is very difficult because, you know, the reason why why the U.S. and, you know, I think the international community in general is so keyed up on stopping states from getting nuclear weapons in the post-Cold War era is because you don't want to deal with a horse that gets out of the barn. Because once it does, once it does everybody recognizes you can't do much to put it back in. You can only slow it down. And all of the benefits that, you know, North Korea is getting, red carpet treatment at Singapore, a lot of love from, you know, President, literally love from President Trump are things that a state like Iran would love to get. So what is the, the message and the signal? Well, if you get nuclear weapons and you succeed, then maybe you can get it. So I may threaten you before it, but if you can successfully acquire nuclear weapons surreptitiously or outflank the United States, then there's actually, you know, recognition at the end of the, at the tunnel. Uh, and potentially some rewards. And so the strategy with North Korea actually undermines the strategy with Iran and incentivizes Iran to move beyond just what it had in the JCPOA, which was essentially a very small nuclear hedge. And, you know, by all accounts, the JCPOA is working when one accepts what the point of the JCPOA was, the for the and that's the Iran nuclear, Iran US nuclear deal with the the P5 plus one. The point of the JCPOA was not to eliminate Iran's intent to pursue nuclear weapons, which is a misnomer. It was designed to incentivize Iran from acting on that intent, catch it if it did, and punish it severely if it was caught cheating. And by all accounts, it was working. So best case scenario, I think, for the Trump administration with Iran right now, given that President Trump doesn't want a war with Iran, and a war with Iran would be another war in the Middle East would be a disaster for the United States. I think that would probably be pretty much the decline and the end of the United States as a, as a superpower. I don't think we can afford it. So what does that leave you? It leaves you with essentially uh, rebooting the JCPOA and calling it something else. I think that's probably where this ends up with Iran. Okay, let's talk a little bit about South Asia. Um, you know, you recently co-authored a article in the journal International Security with Chris Clary, where you somewhat presciently argued that uh, India is demonstrating a discernible interest in pursuing counterforce nuclear posture. Uh, just to explain to our listeners, uh, counterforce nuclear posture is one which is aimed at the adversary's nuclear capabilities, whereas a counter value in, in the jargon is basically targeting population centers and so on. And in this article, Vipin, you mentioned that it is extremely difficult to execute such a strategy. And destabilizing. Uh, and why? But why then is India looking to go in that direction? And it seems that the recent statement by the Indian Defense Minister, you know, which kind of put a bit of a question mark uh, without wanting to do so perhaps on India's uh, no first use policy seems to support your argument that there are sort of, there is at least a degree of rethinking within the system about the utility or perhaps even the wisdom of having a policy like that. So what what, what is triggering all of this stuff? Right. So uh, I think let, let's, let's start at the beginning. India's um, security dilemma with Cargill. So the year after India and Pakistan test nuclear weapons, Pakistan takes its nuclear weapons capability out for a test drive and initiates a Cargill war. So you say, okay, we've seen this before, but it was under the nuclear overhang. And there was a lot of caution and concern about what this would look like with two mutual nuclear powers. Then in 2001, Pakistan took its nuclear weapons out for another test drive and sponsored the terrorist attack on parliament in Delhi. That led to Operation Parakram, where Indian strike corps stood poised and ready for 10 months and then were sent back home. The narrative Pakistan had was, wow, this Ferrari really has some, has some speed. And that began India's first search for a solution to you know, the, the, the security problem of how do you retaliate against terrorist attacks in your mainland 
under the nuclear overhang. And that birthed basically the concept of cold start, right? So the initial push was, you know, maybe we can develop conventional strategies to punish Pakistan under the nuclear overhang. And, uh, you know, the, the, all of that reorganization rethinking was about developing credible conventional retaliatory options to deter Pakistan from doing it again. So for several years, this was the effort, I think. While India's nuclear weapons program was, was slowly uh, growing and developing reach and looked like uh, an assured retaliation strategy, which is, look, we, we're gonna, we have this conventional strategy, but if you use nuclear weapons on our forces or on our territory, we are going to re- retaliate massively. We have a no first use policy, but you know, the conventional retaliation is going to have space because if you, uh, if you try to defeat or uh, deter that with uh, nuclear use Pakistan, we will destroy seven of your cities. Then comes the Bombay attack an audacious a, a attack by any accounts, right? If this, if, if a Lushkari Taiba outfit had done- This is 2008. This is 2008, right? So in New, if, if something like this had happened in New York, can you imagine the American reaction? If there was ever an opportunity or a justification for taking cold start out for a test drive, it was a Bombay attack. And the Indian government didn't do it, right? And there are good reasons why I think India was restrained in that particular episode. What, what would it achieve at that point, right? Uh, and there was a lot of work on intelligence afterwards and, you know, developing- uh, more rapid responses and you know prevention was basically the best defense but pakistan walks away from 2008 saying wow we, you know this was an audacious attack and there was nothing india's conventional options the cold start options were neutralized and i think that began a push on two separate uh doors which were related which was okay your ground option is probably not you know uh, available or practical because it doesn't solve the fundamental problem how do you signal you have limited aims and how do you how do you signal or, or or restrain yourself if you start getting drunk on success? You have ground forces operating in Pakistan. That may be it's very difficult to convince the adversary that you know you'll stop or where the where where the uh, the limited aims are, and so you inherently run up on the nuclear red lines. But standoff strikes may not, right? So I think what we saw in Balakot was kind of the culmination of a decade's worth of thinking and and development of standoff capability where you can hit limited you know targets uh you know from the air and where the nuclear threat is irrelevant but coupled with that i think is well you have to worry about what happens if there is escalation and i think this is where the uh the thinking about counterforce may have started getting uh a, a attractive and let me be clear i don't i don't know or think that india has a full counterforce capability our article was identifying a lot of the trends that suggest that it might be thinking about it and there is a strategic attraction of it, even despite all the major downsides to it. And that is, you know, if you get escalation, rather than trying to calibrate your response below the nuclear threshold or the nuclear overhang, just get rid of it altogether, right? If you or at least credibly threatened, or credibly threatened to do it, right? Exactly. And so here the scenario is: if you know Pakistan is seen to be operationalizing its nuclear capabilities, you don't give it a chance to get any off. Uh, and you have a limited number of especially Pakistani strategic nuclear forces. If you're in Delhi, you know, the Nasirs are uh, deployed in the theater, but they can't range your cities, right? 60, 70 kilometers can't range the cities particularly well. So if you're, if you're, if you're a planner in Delhi, you're really worried about the forces that can hit your cities. And those numbers in the, the those systems number in the tens, not the tens of thousands that the U.S. and Russia uh, were dealing with. And so it's not implausible that you think, look, I've got... Uh, I've invested a lot in intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance. I have an, a growing array of pretty sophisticated missile defenses for my key cities. 
I have accurate systems. In extremis, if I have to go and get, you know, if I can get 80 or 90% of Pakistan's strategic nuclear force and eliminate the nuclear overhang, if it looks like they're going to use those nuclear weapons, you know, better to have to intercept three or four rather than 30 or 40. And so the that by itself, I think there's a, a deterrent logic. You know, if you put pressure on Pakistan that, look, you may not have this nuclear capability to deter our conventional retaliation and opens up the space for conventional retaliation. There is not a complete – there's not an insane logic there about why India might be interested in counterforce. I mean there's a reason why the United States has persistently had huge doses of counterforce in its nuclear strategy. But then the problem would be that Pakistan would have a – what you would call a use it or lose it dilemma, right? right. They, they'd want to sort of look to using nuclear weapons early on in a crisis rather than reserving and them. And this is where the linkage to no first use comes comes in that I think wasn't appreciated uh, or is appreciated by a very small number uh, of people because they're often viewed as independent. If you do have an interest in counterforce, you have to go first. You cannot allow the adversary to get any of its weapons off because you have a very, very tight accounting of how many weapons you have to assign to their weapons. Uh, and you basically have to, I mean, ideally you catch them napping, but if you can't catch them napping, you have to go get them before they get any off. And so you have to leave open this possibility of preemption. And from the beginnings, although India had a no first use uh, declaration in the official doctrine in 2003, minus the Kembio caveat. So let's leave that aside. India and Indian leaders, Chris and I argue and show, have been persistently and consistently uncomfortable with an absolute no first use policy and have always argued about this preemption exception. If you have evidence that Pakistan is about to use nuclear weapons and you knew it, you couldn't. You can't sit back and let them do it, right? Vajpayee stood there in Jalandhar in 2000 after Cargill and said, essentially, if you think we're going to sit back and let you drop a bomb on our citizens and we know it, you have another thing coming. And then there's this, been the steady erosion for especially a preemption exemption. Shivshankar Menon in uh, his memoirs, uh, General Nagel in his writings, uh, then Defense Minister Parikar talked very clearly about why should I bind myself when push comes to shove? Uh, it's very hard to make credible in practice. Nothing physically would stop any country from using nuclear weapons as and when it chooses to do so. And ironically, I think Indian strategic planners have discounted China's NFU for the very same reasons that many people question the sanctity of India's NFU, which is when push comes to shove, what stops China from using nuclear weapons first? Uh, and then we had the RM statement, which was, uh, I think, the clearest erosion of the official doctrine, which basically said, look, we have no first use up until now, but you know what we do in the future depends on the circumstances, which is stating the obvious in many ways, uh, but explicitly doing so, uh, I think, uh, you know, essentially renders the no first use pledge to India's adversaries uh, essentially hollow and meaningless. I mean, it was crumbling anyway, but I think this was uh, essentially the highest level and most official uh, erosion of it because th there are two options. One, you can do you can do what India has done, which is steadily inject ambiguity into it or revise the doctrine. The problem with revising the doctrine is if you actually formally roll back NFU, it is much more aggressive and much more provocative than if you just inject ambiguity into it and render it hollow for deterrent purposes. So I suppose in the post-Balakot uh, scenario, uh, particularly with, with kind of this ambiguity around the NFU being articulated in, in, in somewhat different ways. So we are, we, we are then talking about a situation where any future, God forbid, uh, crisis between India and Pakistan is likely to look somewhat different, at least from New Delhi and Islamabad's, Islamabad's perspective in terms of the kinds of incentives that they have, 
Uh, I don't think the earlier thresholds can be quite taken for granted. So, so we are entering somewhat new terrain now. Right. And I think, I think the impact will not be necessarily on use in a conflict. It will be about preparation for use. And in Balakot, to this day, there's still been no clarity on uh, Admiral Lamba's statement that India may have deployed the INS Arihant in the middle of the crisis. You know, the statement was that India deployed its its plural nuclear submarines. There are only two, a conventional uh, SSN, the INS Chakra, and then the SSBN, the nuclear armed submarine, the INS Arihant. And that was never clarified, even when he was asked. And I think the aim was to inject ambiguity, or maybe it was deployed and everybody saw it. Maybe nobody knows whether weapons were on board. I, for one, would be, uh, uh, I would bet that nuclear weapons were not put on board, but we don't know. They wanted... Pakistan and the world to know that India was preparing in the event that Pakistan did anything with nuclear weapons. And I think Pakistan took note of that. So in future crises, we may see operationalization and dispersal and deployment of nuclear weapons earlier than we have in the past. And I think that's a real concern, especially if Pakistan is worried about Indian preemption. There's another potential implication of the RM statement, which is, are there other circumstances in which India may find it useful to use nuclear weapons first besides preemption? And this has opened the door to a whole other possibility about in the China scenario, if there is, God forbid, ever a significant conventional war and India finds itself, you know, on the back foot of that, would it ever consider using nuclear weapons first on Chinese conventional forces? Would it ever consider using nuclear weapons first in a Pakistan contingency, in a conventional war and not just for nuclear preemption? These are open questions. Personally, I think my reading of it is this is a lot of this is about preemption um, towards Pakistan. But uh, the one of the problems with ambiguity, and you know, at this point, nothing. I think adversaries are probably ruling nothing out. Uh, and if that was the aim of the RM statement, which was very carefully scripted, by the way, I mean, this isn't an off-the-cuff remark. He goes to Pokhran on the death anniversary of Ajpai, says no first use was great up until now, but what we do in the future uh, will depend on the circumstances. This wasn't, you know, no one can say this is a personal opinion. No one can say this is an official government of India policy statement. It was not a change in doctrine. I get attacked, you know, saying, oh, the doctrine is not going to. I don't think India will ever change the doctrine. But these policy statements have meaning uh, and go a long way in eroding the sanctity of the no first use pledge. And then we link to your uh, article with Chris Clary on this uh, in the show notes so that our readers can follow up and see how you sort of make the case that you do. Uh, Whipin, uh, tell us, what are you reading these days? Is there anything that you'd recommend to our listeners uh, to help them make sense of all of this stuff? Uh, both terrifying and wonderful to see uh, a lot of great scholarship out there by young scholars uh, working on a variety of uh, issue areas. Uh, two of my students have new books out that are, are are well worth reading and buying. Nick Miller's Stopping the Bomb about U.S. Not nuclear non-proliferation policy. Mark Bell has a book. Uh, soon coming out with Cor- Cornell Press on emboldenment, which is, uh, I think, really timely. Jeffrey Lewis's 2020 commission on North Korea was a fiction book about, um, you know, how we ended up with an accidental or inadvertent North Korean nuclear use on the United States. There's a lot of uh, both heavy scholarship and uh, more fun uh, reading on uh, all of these topics. Great. And we link to all of those books and recommendations on the show notes. Vipin Narang, a pleasure to have you at Interpreting India. Thank you, Srinath. Thank you, Carnegie India. Thank you for listening to this episode of Interpreting India, a podcast presented every two weeks by Carnegie India. I'm Srinath Raghavan. For more information about the podcast and the production team, you can follow us on social media 
and visit our webpage.